Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And because the thing that we do today is a really special thing. If you've looked ahead in your liturgy, as I'm sure you are wont to do, today, on the heels of our sermon series, Cultivate, Grow, Renew, we are going to take a moment and to bless our confirmands and to send them on their way as a community of faith. We open up our confirmation class this Thursday. Finally, here we go. And they will be sort of in a small group unto themselves, and we are going to bless them and send them on their way. Some of them are beginning this journey brand new today. Others of them have come back, and I'm so grateful they actually did come back. Thank you very much for actually seeing this through a second year, and are prepared to continue the journey which we anticipate will end, at least this chapter of it will end on Pentecost 2023, where we will confirm them fully into the life and ministry of the church. But regardless of whether they are new or they are coming back, underneath all that we do, underneath the pizza, And the four square, which friends, I'm telling you, back in that back room gets a little intense at times. And the awkward silences when I ask them a question and they're going, I have no idea what he's talking about. And the prayers that we say, and young men and women trying to find their own language for prayer. Underneath all this stuff that we do, what I hope we discover is that they have stepped onto a road that has been tread by millennia of believers before them. It is a well-worn road. And I was reminded of them as I was watching Rings of Power this week. I got any Rings of Power fans? Anybody watching it? Not a golly days. I'm really out here all on my own. But I won't give too much away only to say that someone in this show said, our paths are laid before us by powers greater than our own. We certainly can recognize, yes, God's call that sends us forth on a journey. And that somebody responds, sounds a bit like an adventure. And this person responded to that, alone, it's just a journey. Now adventures, they must be shared. So I hope that our confirmands understand that we are not sending them on a journey by themselves. Rather, we join an adventure that has been practiced since the early days of the church. And it's an adventure that whether we are confirmed or not, it is an adventure that all of us are on. Every one of us is still on this adventure of faith, walking together to figure out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's to that, to the millennia of this experience that I want to turn for a moment and to reflect on what confirmation means and how it functions and how how it's come to function and maybe, if I can be so bold, a problem sometimes with how it functions. So, in the early days of the church, baptism, confirmation, and first communion, first Eucharist, all happened together. Part of this was because the church, for lack of a better word, was a secret society. In many ways, it was illegal to be a Christian. And so it was, you had to make sure that people were trustworthy, would not rat you out. And so there was a process that you went through in order to join the church. What we know from our best documents is that it was a three-year process to become a member of Christ's church. So I don't want to hear from my confirmands when I ask them for two. But you would go through study for three years And then all at the same time, you would be baptized, confirmed, and you would receive communion for the very first time. And when Christianity became legal in roughly around 300 AD with the ascent of uh, Emperor Constantine, large chunks of society were converted to Christianity very quickly. 
And you can understand, I mean, imagine here if all of a sudden, okay, I've got a class of six, now I've got a class of a hundred that want to come through a confirmation process and want to be a part of the church. Well, the church simply didn't have the infrastructure to support that, mostly because it was only a bishop that could confirm into the church, and there's only one bishop for a large geographic area. It just didn't work. And so that's where the separation between baptism and confirmation happened. You could be baptized, and we'll pick up the educational part later. Spread all these people out, and we can educate them a little bit at a time. And then we come to the Reformation. And at the Reformation, Luther kept that basic structure in place. And our own forebears, the Reformed Church, kept that structure of combining confirmation and First Communion, but separating it out from baptism. But all the while, this critical tie between baptism and confirmation remained. In baptism, we are claimed as Christ's own by Christ himself. It is a work of God, not a work of us. It is not a work of our will. It is not anything that we choose. God chose us before we chose God. That is central to how we understand baptism. But in confirmation, if God has hugged us in baptism, in confirmation, we return the hug. There is a place for us to say yes to God. And in confirmation, having learned our story and having learned what this thing is that we do called church, we embrace the adventure that is faith. It really is that simple. That's really all that confirmation is. In baptism, you are called God's beloved child and have been given every spiritual blessing under the heavens, Ephesians chapter 3. What does that mean? Well, to join the church, to say, I want to be a part of this, is simply to take part in the adventure. But embedded, as we saw this separation between confirmation and baptism, embedded in these changing structures were two very different understandings of what confirmation and indeed faith are all about. Consider this. Prior to Protestantism, prior to the break, and prior to, you know, sort of the, the, the nationalizing of Christianity, confirmation was linked with the sacraments. Baptism, yes, but you would get confirmed so that you could receive the Eucharist. It's this mysterious act of receiving Christ's body and blood. Initiation and baptism early on was pointed towards this great mystery. But as it developed, that's not so much what confirmation became about. And if one opens Luther's small catechism, which, by the way, is one of the most wonderful documents for the basics of the faith that has ever been written, it still informs how I teach confirmation. If one opens, though, Luther's catechism, the opening pages, the thing you open to first is the Ten Commandments. And you read through that a little bit, and the next thing you get to is the Creed. And so in Protestantism particularly, baptism and then confirmation appears in our own documents to be pointed less towards a mystery, not towards the sacraments, but towards a moral code and right doctrine. There were good reasons that this happened. There was great moral decline in the church, and so there's reason that Luther does this, but at the same time, pointing the sacrament of baptism towards a moral code has consequences. I remember one time, I was very young as a pastor. I know some of you will say you're still very young, but I was really, really young. And I remember I had an original youth group organization meeting, and I'm like, what are we going to do? You know, excited, you know, teach the Bible and all this kind of stuff. And somebody looked me straight in the eye and they said, Pastor, we have two expectations of you. Number one, we expect our church to teach some good morals, and two, we hope they have a good time doing it. Teach morals and have a good time. 
Now, I remember being floored by this. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, it sounds about right. But I remember being floored by this, and I'm still floored by this to this day. I remember thinking to myself, all right, so run this by me one more time. So we serve a Christ who was prophesied about, came to us born of a virgin, did miraculous healings, said that he and God the Father are one, walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, was crucified and raised, ascended into heaven, and the takeaway from all of this is be a good person? Really? I can think of nothing, I cannot think of a less compelling conclusion to the most compelling story the world has ever told. Of course being a good person is a good thing, but is that what Jesus came to do? And to this point, psychologist Richard Beck, a Baptist, one of my guys, I'm excited about this guy. He writes, and he's writing about the crisis of faith and the confusion of faith in our times. He writes very pointedly. He says, Protestantism, to the extent that it has been pointed towards a moral code, says has been a journey from the mystical to the moral. And he says, if faith in our time it is slowly dying, it's because Christians stopped seeking God and started to focus on being good. That's that's a shot. If God is slowly dying, if faith is dying in our times, it's because Christians stopped seeking God and started to focus on being good. And we've asked all the structures of our faith to simply tell us how to be good. We've taken the scriptures from this, this remarkable story of faith to just kind of going in there and finding verses that tell me what I'm supposed to do. And any one of us who have tried to do that have come across the idea that the scriptures aren't really that great at doing that. I mean, there are times it does that, and then there are times it really fails at that. We've boiled down prayer to this idea that it's just a sort of about, you know, trying to fix some wrong in the world or getting God to do what we think God ought to do. And any of us who have prayed for any extended amount of time know that prayer is kind of a hit and miss when that's how we think about prayer. It doesn't really work that well. And to that end, then we start to wonder if prayer has any purpose at all. And even the sacraments, when we've just pointed them towards the moral, well, baptism is simply an initiation. It's just kind of the thing you go through. And Eucharist kind of doesn't make sense at all. Like, what exactly are we supposed to be getting from this bread and this wine? Like, that doesn't quite work. And in all of this, when we have moved from the mystical to the moral, when our lesson is simply at the end of the day, be a good person, it has drained our life from us. But I remember a conversation that I had in college. Happened on the same day, driving around with a buddy of mine. He went to the church. He wasn't in college. He was in the youth group that I was running. And we're driving around, and we actually looked at each other. We came from similar backgrounds. So we said, you know the three things that churches tell you you're not supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to drink. You're not supposed to smoke. And allow me to put it this way, you're not allowed to have inappropriate relations with anybody who'd lo- who, uh, of the opposite sex, if you take where I'm headed with this. So we asked one another. He said, of those three things, which one is the one you're most likely to trip up on? We had a conversation about that. 
But the whole point was like, which, where's your moral compass pointed? Where's the weak spot in you? And we had this conversation and nothing came of it. The same day I dropped him back off at his house and I walked in and his dad, who was the pastor at the time, he's sitting there with a prayer book and I go, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm praying. He goes, well, what, what is that? And he goes, What's, it's the liturgy of the hours. I said, I never heard of it. He said, you probably wouldn't have. You grew up a Baptist. What it is, is the structure of prayer that has come down to us from St. Benedict. It's how the monks pray. And I said, oh my goodness, tell me more about that. Tell me, like, I get to, uh, you mean I can actually pray like a monk? I want to know all about that. I was enlivened by this idea, not of just being good, the conversation I had in the car with my buddy. What enlivened me was this idea that I could get to know God. It wasn't about avoiding drinking and smoking. It was about getting to know God. And if we expect our confirmants simply to learn how to be good, don't be surprised if they get a little bored. And I, for one, am not sure that I blame them. Paul uses a very old story to show this, and he points back to the Exodus. He said in the Exodus, and Leanne wrote this wonderfully today, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law, and as he comes back down, as he's had this face-to-face experience with God, he comes back down holding the tablets, yes, but his face is shining so much that he has to put a veil over his face because it's making everybody really nervous. Like, what in the world is going on with Moses? It's this mystical occurrence that happens for Moses. And what caused Moses' face to shine was not the tablets of the law. It was that he had been in the presence of God. And so he veils his face. And the Israelites, and you and I, can't understand what Moses would have experienced because maybe we've never been where Moses has been. Maybe we've been pursuing this kind of morality through the church at the expense of an actual experience with God. And Paul picks up on this. He says, when we only seek to be good, this is what he writes in 2 Corinthians, when we only seek to be good, when it's only about the law, when our faith is only do this and don't do that, it's as if there's a veil over our own hearts. We're hidden from seeing what God actually has for us. We don't yet see properly and clearly what our faith really is which is more than just don't lie to your parents. I don't need the church to tell me that. What I need the church to do is to introduce me to God. And that's what we, that's the only thing we have to offer the world. And Paul says that when one turns to the Lord and one seeks God, he says the veil is removed and we are invited to have an experience of the divine. Friends, that's the adventure that enlivens. And that's the adventure that we might take, whether we're in confirmation or confirmation was a long time ago. That's the adventure we're called on. The mystical still beckons us. And consider this when we try to figure out, well, are you sure? Well, yeah, I'm sure because I know the cross of Christ. And here's what I know about the cross I know that there was no one more moral than Jesus. We could try to be as moral as we want. None of us. If there's one thing we all share, it's that all of us are like, well, I'm not sure I'm as good as Jesus. I think we all would agree on that. There's no one more moral than Jesus. And yet, Jesus was poor. Jesus was rejected by his community. Jesus endured unjust suffering and death. But he rose again. He rose again. There's this mystical underneath of it all. Our morality will not save us from having a a challenging life. It's never promised that good works will get you out of hard spots. No. 
But Jesus fully entrusted himself into the hands of Almighty God. And in doing so, Jesus laid the foundations for our faith. And in Christ, we now see fully and clearly what God is doing in the world. This kingdom that he comes to bring in this kingdom, we get to be a part of. The veil is pulled away in Christ. This is what God is like. And we are invited to have an experience of God as well. And we start to experience that God is like this. God does not punish enemies. God loves his enemies. God does not condemn. God forgives. God is not found in power. God is found in meekness. This is the mystical. This is beautiful. This is the divine for which our souls yearn and which our society is crying for. Christ has lifted the veil and now we can with time, patience, discipline, and yes, passion, we can see clearly. We become this mystical letter that is written, not the tablets of the law. Paul says before our reading today, he says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all, and you show that, excuse me, and you show that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets that are human hearts. The story of God is now not written in moral codes. It has some moral codes, yes. Nobody's saying that's not a good thing. But that's not the essence of our faith. The essence of our faith is not something that's written down somewhere else and we just learn it. The essence of our faith is that God is writing the story of faith on your heart and on mine. The story that started in the scriptures is now being written in you and in me and in us. And that is mystical. We are not just learning it. We are it. It is unmediated. It's resistant to our manipulations and desires. It's unpredictable. But the life that God comes to give us is completely life-changing. There's a glory still deeper than anything we have realized yet, friends. And for those who are blessed to catch a glimpse of God, Paul says, you are being transformed from one glory into another with ever-increasing glory. Our face is shining in a way that the world will never understand. And when we confirm into the church, when these young men and women say, yeah, I actually want to be a part of that, may these, our friends and co-laborers in the fields, come to find companions on this adventure. Not just saying, well, we're pretty good people, but rather together seeking what eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor human imagination envisioned and so friends I direct you as we think about this to our prayer of the day our prayer of the day it says stir up the wills of your faithful people Lord God and strengthen our faith that transformed by grace may we walk in your way through Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord friends we do not need to pray for God to love us more God already loves us more than we can imagine we do not need to pray for more faith Because we were already given the entirety of the Holy Spirit when we were called into Christ's faith. We do not need more God in our lives because the Holy Spirit already fills us and fills this world from the moment of baptism. And anyone with eyes to see can see God in places we never imagined. God is everywhere. No, we don't need any more of that. All we need and all we need pray for is that our wills would be stirred. The Spirit is willing, said Jesus, but the flesh is weak. It's our bodies that need to get up and moving so that we can see what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in the world. Our spirits know what we are and our spirits yearn for something deeper and more profound. And it's our bodies that are lulled to sort of this dullness and boredom and resistance. 
So let us pray this prayer of the day for our confirmands and for one another, for everyone who seeks something deeper from God, a more mystical understanding of what Jesus is here to do and what Jesus is doing inside of us. May we pray that our wills are stirred, that we are awakened and our eyes opened to God's presence in the world. May we awaken to the ways that we are being transformed by grace, and may we be inspired to walk this peculiar road with courage. So as you pray for them, let me tell you something about our confirmants. Here's what I know about them. They're already good. I might even go so far as to say they're already fabulous in their own ways. They got some edges? Yeah, they do. Talk to their parents. You'll get more of a story. It's not for me to tell you about that. Everybody got their edges. But they're wonderful. They are beloved by God. And if all we have to offer them is just, you know, try not to kill anybody, which is in the Ten Commandments, it's no surprise that maybe that won't jive. But what we're offering them is not that. What we're offering them is the same experience that Peter, James, and John had to go up on that mountain and to catch a glimpse of God face to face and say, this is a great place for us to be here. Can we live here? And Jesus is going to say, it is a great place to be, but I'm sending you back down into the world because you have a mission to carry out. And that, I believe, is worth showing up to confirmation. That, I believe, is worth a church praying for. And that, I do believe, will change our communities and ultimately will change the world. That is my prayer for our confirmands. I invite you to join me in praying that for them and for one another. 